Governor John White could hardly contain his excitement as the island of Roanoke materialized in the distance. It had been three full years since he'd left the colony, three full years since he'd seen his family. It was now 1590. England's war with Spain had delayed his efforts to return, but he'd never stopped thinking about his daughter and grandchild. Now, the day had come for them to finally reunite. But as his men rowed their boats closer to the shore, something about the quiet air unsettled Governor White. In the darkness, the silence felt like a bad omen. It was as though nature held its breath, waiting alongside him to learn the fate of the people he loved most. Because even though White prayed they'd survive the years without him, deep down, he feared he was already too late. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on Roanoke, the lost colony at the heart of America's origin story, which vanished without a trace in 1587. Today, we'll cover how the settlement came to be and why the colonists got left behind when their governor and several of his men returned to England. Then we'll track their ill-fated rescue attempts that led to the baffling discovery. Next time, we'll analyze two conspiracy theories about what happened to the colonists living at Roanoke. Some believe the group was killed off by the Spanish, while others think they may have integrated with one of the indigenous American communities nearby. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. 
So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. In 1584, Queen Elizabeth sat amongst her court, pondering Britain's most pressing problem, Spain. A war had been brewing between both countries for some time. But now, supported by a growing list of colonies across the Atlantic, the Spanish military had become a major threat to the United Kingdom. If their momentum continued, they'd soon have a fleet powerful enough to conquer all of England. Queen Elizabeth knew she had to act fast or risk being outmatched by the ever-growing Spanish Armada. So she made a decision. England would also colonize America. But she decided they were going to do things a bit differently than the Spanish. Their conquistadors had gained a reputation for brutality. The queen had heard they'd been burning native people alive sometimes feeding them to the hunting dogs when they rejected colonization. Queen Elizabeth felt the English had more respect and integrity than that. Instead, she'd give the directive to befriend the natives and learn about the new lands from them directly. It was the only way they'd be successful. To oversee the colonization of North America, the Queen appointed the esteemed soldier Walter Raleigh to run the mission. She issued him a patent, giving him permission to take over any lands not already held by, quote, any Christian prince and people. In other words, any land not already conquered by Europeans was fair game. This was a common approach to colonization across the globe at the time and became the go-to strategy for British regimes in the years to come. After all, war was something the Queen wanted to avoid. Raleigh assembled a reconnaissance voyage in the spring of 1584. The goal was to scout North America's eastern coastline for the perfect location. Ideally, they wanted to find somewhere that was hidden from the Spanish with a good lookout spot to track enemy ships. From there, they'd establish a small colony and, if all went well, they'd expand westward over time. In late April 1584, a group of roughly a dozen explorers boarded two ships setting sail across the Atlantic. Among their ranks was a friend of Raleigh's named John White. White was an artist tasked with painting the flora and fauna of the new land. His illustrations would give the British a glimpse of the people and places they encountered abroad. 
Raleigh, White, and the rest of the crew arrived on the shores of what are now the Outer Banks of North Carolina on July 4th, 1584, more specifically, a small island known as Hatteras. Almost immediately after dropping anchor, the English were spotted by a group of indigenous Americans living on shore. They were known as the Croatoans. At first, the English and the indigenous peoples observed one another from a distance with curiosity. That is, until one of the brave Croatoan men grabbed a canoe and rowed up to the side of the English ship. Minding the Queen's instructions, the English were exceedingly friendly. They welcomed the local aboard and gave him wine, meat, and clothing as gifts. In return, the Croatoan man caught the sailors as many fish as his boat could carry. According to the records we have of the Englishmen, a friendship was blossoming between the English explorers and the Croatoan people. During their time in the West, the Croatoans provided the men with food and knowledge. They also traded goods. The location was an excellent lookout point, but because it was on the outer banks, it would be vulnerable to Spanish ships. They still needed to find a spot to build their future settlement, and unfortunately, Hatteras wouldn't suffice. About 50 miles north, they happened upon a small island tucked behind a string of other barrier isles. It was the perfect place to hide a large group of people from passing ships. Besides boasting an impressive lookout point, the waters surrounding the land were deceivingly shallow. Most ships would find themselves wrecked here before anyone could yell, aground. It was exactly what they'd been searching for. When the English explored more of the island, they encountered a second tribe of indigenous people called the Sikatans. For years, this tribe had been the enemies of the Croatoans. But these sailors were mindful not to get involved in the locals' conflicts. They stayed neutral, befriending the Sikotans and learning a lot from them, including the name of the island they'd come to call home. Roanoke. After about six weeks on the so-called New World, it was time for the men to turn back for England. Upon arrival, they declared their venture a resounding success. Not only had they laid claim to land not yet occupied by the Spanish, they'd also brought back exotic goods from their travels. Things like deerskins, pearls, and tobacco all obtained from the local tribes. Also, there were the two indigenous American ambassadors named Manteo and Juan Cheese who voluntarily returned with the group, one from the Croatoan tribe and the other from the Sikatan. A leader of the Sikatan tribe, Wingena, wanted to ally with the English, but to do so, he needed to learn all he could about the foreigners, so he sent the men across seas. Meanwhile, London was humming over North America and its many treasures. Queen Elizabeth was so impressed, she knighted Raleigh for his efforts, although he hadn't actually joined the journey. As for the newly conquered land, it was to be called Virginia in honor of Queen Elizabeth, the Virgin Queen, who was known to defy standards of marriage and childbirth. The following year, in April 1585, Sir Walter Raleigh financed an even bigger expedition, this time led by his cousin, Sir Richard Grenville. 
The goal of this voyage was to loot the Spanish and establish a trading post, a place for English ships to exchange goods with the locals and resupply before the journey back. Once again, John White joined the voyage as the resident artist. This time, he was told to focus on creating a map of the region. The expedition started out much like the last. The ships made their three-month journey across the Atlantic with just a few rough patches. The fleet even stopped to visit the Croatoans before heading north. But in June, shortly after the ships arrived at Roanoke, the settlers faced their first major dilemma. The Tiger, the main vessel of the expedition, was too large to navigate the shallow waters of the shores. As a result, the crew had to anchor the ship at sea and transport their goods using smaller boats. But volatile seas battered the ship as the colonists tried to unload provisions from the Tiger. As a result, food and supplies meant to last the colonists a year were destroyed in the process. Short on provisions and not wanting to return to England empty-handed, Sir Grenville set sail to the Caribbean. His plan was to loot Spanish ships for their supplies and treasure. Roughly a hundred people, including John White, were left behind to continue constructing the settlement and several forts. A man named Ralph Lane, who was the second in command, was given authority to govern in Grenville's place. One day, while Lane was left in charge, chaos broke out amongst the sailors, all because a silver cup had gone missing from their scant supplies. It's unclear if the cup was actually stolen or just misplaced, or why they were so upset about its disappearance. But Lane's reaction proved problematic. He blamed the Secotans for thievery. He instructed his men to attack the nearest native settlement, a village belonging to the Secatan tribe. That evening, they burned it to the ground, as well as the surrounding grain fields, which was a major source of food for the locals. It resulted in a Secatan chief named Wingena rebelling against the English. He ordered his men to ambush the English while they were split up, but his hateful attempts were mostly unsuccessful. In the wake of this petty conflict, the Secatans abandoned what little was left of their settlement and moved to a village on the mainland. They cut off all aid to the English and left them to fend for themselves in Roanoke. As the harsh winter set in, the English began to starve. Things got so bad, they had to resort to eating their own dogs. During this time, Lane and his men attacked the Secotan leader, Wingena, and killed him, along with his trusted council people. But in 1586, Lane and his men caught a lucky break. An English ship coincidentally anchored near the island after a looting mission. They offered to take the settlers with them back to England. By this point, the men were malnourished and haggard. They happily abandoned the settlement after almost a year and sailed back to the safety of their motherland. A mere three weeks later, Sir Richard Grenville returned to Roanoke, his ship full of supplies. But all of his men were now gone. Grenville chose 15 of his crew members to stay in Roanoke and protect England's claim on the land. 
What he didn't know was he was leaving them amidst a terrible clashing between the settlers and natives, one that Lane had spurred before he fled. Still, Grenville left them enough supplies to last for two years. Then he and his remaining crew sailed back to England. Despite the obstacles of this expedition, the Queen still felt it was a good idea to establish a full-blown colony in Virginia. But Sir Raleigh had some issues with Roanoke's location. While it was a great place for a trading post, the treacherous water surrounding the area made it dangerous for other sailors to stop off. They needed a more hospitable location, with safe access to a harbor so they could establish a port town. A better place, Raleigh decided, was some 100 miles north in the Chesapeake Bay, and he believed John White, the man who drew the map of the area, was the perfect person to lead this next expedition. On January 7th, 1587, Sir Raleigh formally appointed John White as governor of the new city of Raleigh, Virginia. White was tasked with finding 150 others to join the pilgrimage, which would set sail that spring. Together, they'd permanently set up residence in North America. As incentive, the colonists would receive 500 acres of unspoiled wilderness and a place within the local government. But there was no sugarcoating it. The mission would certainly be dangerous. When all was said and done, White managed to convince 89 men 15 women and nine children to make the journey. That included his pregnant daughter, Eleanor Dare, and her husband. In May 1587, Governor John White and his colonists boarded a 120-ton ship called the Lyon in Portsmouth, England. The plan was to sail to Roanoke, pick up the 15 men left by Grenville, and journey up the coast to their new home in the Chesapeake Bay. The group couldn't possibly have known the troubles that awaited them, nor the challenges that would unfold long before they even spotted land on the horizon. Coming up, the colonists struggled to gain a foothold in America. Greed, revenge, lust. Murder investigations often pinpoint why someone has been killed, but not necessarily who did the killing? Every Tuesday on Unsolved Murders, meet the victims, suspects, and investigators of the most notorious criminal cases in history. Part traumatic podcast, part old-time radio show, Unsolved Murders transports you to the scene of a crime, its ensuing investigation, and every attempt to solve the case. You'll soon discover that the murder isn't always the most shocking part of the story. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Unsolved Murders. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least, not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home, like the ants in your kitchen the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. 
No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X dot com. Now, back to the story. In June of 1587, Governor John White, along with about 117 other brave settlers, were sailing across the Atlantic. Their goal was to establish a colony in the Chesapeake Bay area of modern-day Virginia. Though their ship, the Lyon, had only been sailing for about a month, things were already getting dicey. Already, the animosity between Governor John White and the ship's captain, Simon Fernandez, was growing. Squabbling in front of their crew had become a daily occurrence. It's unclear how the conflict started, but many believe it had to do with the uncertainty over who was in charge. Raleigh had appointed John White as governor of the future colony, but Fernandez was the captain of the ship. While at sea, he demanded he call all the shots aboard his vessel. By the time the Leon neared the shores of Roanoke Island in mid-July, the power struggle had reached a breaking point. Captain Fernandez waited until the colonists departed the Leon on a smaller vessel to tell them he wasn't going ashore. He didn't want to step foot on land where Governor White actually had authority. He also announced he wouldn't be taking the colonists on to Chesapeake Bay. He'd remain on board for the next month while they unloaded their supplies. Then he'd sail straight back to England. This was a devastating blow for White and the colonists. Roanoke was only meant to be a pit stop on their way to a more hospitable settlement. But without a ride north, they'd be forced to winter on the island. Unlike the fertile Chesapeake Bay, Roanoke was not suited for planting crops, and it was too late in the season to even try. Their supplies would have to last until next spring, when it was safe for ships to cross the Atlantic once again. Even more disturbing, the 15 men Grenville left behind were nowhere to be found. In fact, their entire camp appeared abandoned. The only smile to welcome them was from the sun-bleached bones of a skeleton, unburied in the settlement square. With no other options, the colonists tried to make the best of their situation. For the most part, the cottages from the previous settlers were still habitable. They just needed some light repairs. Governor White instructed the colonists to start refurbishing while others unloaded supplies from the ship. The next several weeks were spent transforming Roanoke into a home. Then, one day in early August, tragedy struck. A colonist named George Howe had been murdered and was found floating near the shore. His body had been riddled with arrows and his head had been beaten in. Many wondered if the Sikatans were retaliating against the colonists for Lane's brutality. But Governor White was hesitant to repeat the mistakes of the past. He asked Manteo, the Croatoan ambassador who had accompanied them back to England, to orchestrate a meeting with other local tribes. 
White learned that the Dasamung Ponk, a subgroup of the Sikatan tribe, had fled after Howe's murder. In fact, there were many small villages of people that feared the English after Lane's acts of violence. Now, it wasn't uncommon for natives to run from the strangers. Although it's still unclear which natives really killed Howe, the Croatoans blamed the Sikatans. White asked the Croatoans to send a message to the Sikatan people, saying the English would forgive Howe's murder if they also forgave the new colonists for Lane's crimes. White and his men waited one week for a response, but when an answer never came, they tried to attack the Sikatan people living in the village of Dasamongpong. They waited until the dead of night to make their move. The English rode inland over the silent waters, sneaking through the grass to the small village. They attacked several indigenous men who they believed to be Howe's murderers, but they were sorely mistaken. The Sikatan tribe had abandoned the village several days prior, fearful the English settlers would come to attack. Instead, on that night, the English killed several Croatoan members who'd been pillaging the area for any remaining goods. This case of mistaken identity led the English to hurt the only native friends they had left. And of course, Manteo was distraught over hurting his own people. One historian remarks that although there were fatalities, it was later forgiven as a misunderstanding. For all the heartbreak and hardship, there were a few shining moments for Governor White and the colonists. One of those came on August 18, 1587, when White's daughter, Eleanor Dare, gave birth to a baby girl. Named after her newfound homeland, baby Virginia became the first English child born in North America. The small bundle of joy embodied the colony's hopes and dreams for a prosperous life in the West. But White couldn't revel in his grandfather role for long. Captain Fernandez planned to depart any day now. And after his betrayal, the colonists didn't trust him to relay the message that they'd been forced to change locations. They needed someone to go back with Fernandez and ensure a supply ship would be sent to Roanoke, not Chesapeake Bay. After some debate, the colonists decided the best man for the job was Governor White himself. White probably wasn't eager to ride back to England with Captain Fernandez, nor was he excited about leaving his family and new granddaughter behind. But at the urging of the others, he put his pride aside and agreed to make the journey. As the Lyon hoisted anchor and maneuvered into the Gulf Stream, it's not hard to imagine Governor White gazing longingly over the wooden railing. He must have strained his eyes against the sea glare, hoping to catch one last glimpse of his beloved Eleanor as she waved goodbye from the shores. The return trip to England was far less pleasant this time around. When the ship finally reached the Azores Islands off the coast of Portugal, most of the crew were unfit for duty, either from malnourishment, dehydration, or both. To make matters worse, Captain Fernandez insisted on keeping the Leone in the Azores to loot. 
White was forced to continue onward on a much smaller flyboat run by a skeleton crew that could barely manage the craft. Bad weather led to significant delays. The flyboat didn't reach Europe until mid-October. The storms had pushed them so far off course they had to dock in Ireland instead of England. Rather than take his chances at sea again, White left the boat behind and made his way home by land. He'd promised the colonists he'd return with supplies as soon as possible, but when 1588 rolled around, all English ships had been enlisted to fight the Spanish Armada. White was stuck in England with no way to return to Roanoke. In 1589, he finally secured a vessel, but his ship had only made it a few miles from the English shores before it was ambushed by a French ship. In the ensuing battle, White sustained two head injuries and was shot in the backside. Ultimately, White and his crew fought off the French looters, but they were badly wounded. They had no choice but to sail back to England and receive medical attention. Despite his best efforts, White's return voyage to Roanoke came as the English defeated the Spanish Armada in August of 1590. By then, three years had passed. Little did he know, the journey back would change the course of his life and the history of America forever. Coming up, Governor White's distressing return to Roanoke. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In 1590, after three long years away from his family, Governor John White finally found a ride back to the Roanoke Colony in Virginia, but it didn't come about the way he'd hoped. The war had significantly depleted financier Sir Walter Raleigh's pocketbook, and White could no longer afford to hire a private ship to make the trip back across the Atlantic. Instead, he booked passage as an ordinary traveler aboard the Hopewell, captained by a man named Abraham Cock. He might not be returning with all the supplies he promised, but at least he'd make it back to govern his people and be with his daughter and granddaughter once again. The vessel set sail on March 20th, 1590. As a mere passenger, White had absolutely no authority on the ship. According to his account, it seemed Captain Cock and his crew barely tolerated him, probably because the captain had his own plans for the voyage. At the end of April, the Hopewell and its fleet arrived in the Caribbean. Cock began pillaging Spanish merchant ships as initially planned. During one of these raids, the crew met a man who informed them of some troubling news the Spanish were aware of the new English colony in America, and they hoped to wipe it out before reinforcements arrived. Governor White was horrified. 
he pleaded with Captain Cock to make haste toward Virginia so they could rescue his friends and family before the Spanish got there. But if White expected empathy from the captain, he was sorely mistaken. Cock was far more concerned with gathering treasure than he was the lives of Roanoke's colonists. At the end of July, the crew was nearing the Caribbean. With hurricane season fast approaching, Captain Cock finally agreed to set course for Roanoke. The Hopewell reached the Outer Banks on August 1st, 1590, but a storm made it too dangerous to journey closer to shore. Once again, White was told to be patient. Nine days later, the storm finally broke. But without a map of the sandbars, the crew risked running aground just as a tiger had done before them. They anchored the ship in deeper waters and used smaller boats to find passage through the shoals. But this took five more days. Finally, on August 15th, White spotted Roanoke Island in the distance. He observed smoke rising near the settlement site and felt his heart swell with hope. Maybe the colonists and his family were prospering. Optimistic thoughts raced through his mind. His granddaughter Virginia would have just turned three. By now, she probably had a full vocabulary. He may have wondered what her first words were or if she'd even recognize his face. It was only a matter of time before these questions were answered, but they still had to make it through the small inlet where the water was known to be unpredictable. Their first attempt was catastrophic. Rough waters capsized one of the boats. Seven of the sailors drowned, leaving only four survivors, each of whom were fished from the inlet by Captain Cock and a couple other strong swimmers. Now the crew was spooked. This was supposed to be a simple mission, but their men were dying quickly. Many of them wanted to forget Roanoke altogether and head back to England. Governor White worried he'd be kept from fulfilling his promise to the colonists once again, this time with the island in sight and less than a day's journey ahead. Luckily for him, Captain Cock would not allow his men to give up. They pressed on. By the time they finally began to approach the shores, the sun was creeping below the horizon. The balmy night settled in as they spotted a flickering light on the north end of the shore. They immediately started to row towards the hopeful fire. To make themselves known, the men made as much noise as possible, singing, playing a trumpet, and calling out. But they were met with deafening silence. Disheartened, they hunkered down in their boats for the night, hoping the following day would bring good news. The morning of August 18th, Virginia Dare's third birthday, dawned with a blazing red sun. This was a bad omen, according to a well-known rhyme. It went red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky at morning, sailors take warning. Still, the party rowed ashore in the direction of the previous night's fire. As they got closer, a pit formed in Governor White's stomach. There wasn't any children's laughter, or any voices at all, for that matter. Only the sounds of nature, undisturbed by civilization. 
When the group reached the entrance of the settlement, White's fears were validated. Not only were there no people, there was hardly anything left. When the governor first left Roanoke, it was a fully functional colony, filled with personal items, weapons, and cottages to house over 100 people. Now, all of that was gone. They searched the premises, hoping to find some clue as to what had happened, but there was nothing. No bones, no bodies, no graves. All they saw was a long, jagged fence made of tree trunks. Inside the enclosure, there were parts of carefully dismantled homes. White sifted through the abandoned colony, growing increasingly desperate. There had to be something to indicate what had become of his family. And that's when his gaze fell upon a mysterious sign. Carved carefully into the trunk of one of the palisade trees at eye level was a message. A single word in capital letters reading, Croatoan. Governor White felt a flame of hope ignite in his chest. To him, the message seemed clear. The colonists had gone to stay with their allies on Hatteras Island, the Croatoans. Additionally, they found the letters C-R-O carved into another tree. He asked Captain Cock to set sail immediately. Unfortunately, as the Hopewell approached Hatteras Island, the weather took a turn for the worst. The waters grew so rough that three of the four anchors were ripped from the ship, leaving it in a precarious position. With seven men dead, only one anchor and hurricane season rapidly approaching, Captain Cox's crew had reached their limit. The men took a vote and decided the Hopewell was headed back to England. Sadly, White had no power to appeal the decision. He was forced to abandon the search and sail back with the rest of the crew. The Hopewell arrived safely back in Plymouth on October 24th, 1590. Not much is known of what happened to White after this failed expedition, but it's said he spent the next three years trying to gather funding and resources to return to Roanoke but he had no success. We aren't sure what became of John White, but we do know that on February 4th, 1593, he wrote a letter to a friend and sent it from a town in Ireland. In the message, White claimed he'd returned to Roanoke, but had failed at finding his family. It was rumored he died several months later on one of Sir Walter Raleigh's estates. In the years that followed, There were many attempts to figure out what happened to the lost colonists, but the most anyone could find were rumors. In time, people moved on. A new colony formed farther north in Jamestown, Virginia. Roanoke gradually faded from public consciousness until it was little more than legend. It became a story told to children about the dangers of the wilderness and the unknowable parts of our vast world. But we haven't forgotten about the lost colony of Roanoke. And in the next episode, we'll investigate two conspiracy theories about what may have happened to the settlers. Like conspiracy theory number one, the colonists were killed either by the Spanish Armada or by the Cicatans. Or conspiracy theory number two, 
the colonists relocated and integrated with the Croatoans, becoming the first truly interracial society in North America. Finally, we'll round out our discussion with a look at why the lost colony looms so large in literature and mythology. As one of the first English settlements in America, the nation's future once rested in the hands of Roanoke's success. Had Captain Fernandez not given up on the mission, and had John White not sailed back to England with him, the America we know might be a very different place today. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back next time with an all-new episode on the Lost Colony of Roanoke. Amongst the many sources we used, we found The Lost Colony and Hatteras Island by Scott Dawson to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and Trent Williamson as our senior production specialist. Ben Bishop is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Danny Messerschmidt, edited by Wendelin Sabroso, Amber Von Schassen, and Lori Gottlieb, fact-checked by Mary Mathis, researched by Bradley Klein, recorded by Freddie Rivera, produced by Bruce Kotovich, and sound designed by Juan Borda. Our hosts are Molly Brandenburg and me, Carter Roy. Lack of evidence, poor police work, clever criminals. Whatever the reason, some murders remain unsolved. Every Tuesday, Unsolved Murders explores the facts of a real-life cold case. Part dramatic podcast, part old-time radio show. Join the ensemble cast of actors as they take you on an exhilarating journey through the crime scene and its ensuing investigation. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Unsolved Murders. Listen free only on Spotify.